Um, so I'll be reading Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Very nice. Uh, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few people who were ill and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Great. Well, keep your Bibles open at Mark chapter 6. That would be terrific. My name's John T. Um, it's fantastic to have you here this afternoon. Uh, let me just say um, a couple of things. One is that Mike is absolutely right. Normally we do have a £2 contribution for our evening meal. Let me tell you, tonight you don't have to pay. And I'll tell you why. It's because there um, is a church in America that has paid for our dinner tonight. How cool is that? So, so, uh, so Melody, uh, so, so Melody's, uh, some friends of hers at church in America have sent money to pay for our Thanksgiving dinner tonight. So you don't have to give any money tonight uh, for the food. It's been paid for. Uh, so enjoy that. Um, and we'll send them a turkey leg or something. <laughs> uh, they, they also sent the stuffing. So we've got proper American stuffing. So uh, it's all about making the right friends. It's good. So, um, yeah. I can push my cable a little bit harder. Uh, It's in as hard as it'll go. Is that all right? Are we all happy? Good. Okay, well, we're going to turn to uh, Mark chapter 6. It is brilliant to have you with us. And one of the things we love to do is to sing. And we're going to do some more singing in in a minute. Uh, But we also love to look at God's word. We love to understand what he has to say to us. We believe this is his word. So why don't we pray, ask that God would help us. And then we're going to dive into uh, this bit of Mark. Father, we thank you for this wonderful word that you've given us. And Father, we ask that you'd help us to listen. We ask that we'd really engage this evening, that even though we may be sleepy and we may have had busy weeks, that this afternoon we'd wake up by the power of your spirit to listen to your word, that you might speak to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I I warn you, I'm going to start with quite an offensive word. Okay, so if you are easily offended, uh, I'm giving you a warning now. All right, I'm going to start with what I think our culture would consider to be pretty offensive. Um, it's the word ordinary. Ordinary. You might say, no, no, that's not offensive. Actually, I think our culture thinks it's very offensive. I'll prove it to you. After dinner tonight, go up to the people who cook dinner and say, thanks for the food, it was very Ordinary. They'll be offended. It's an offensive thing. To be ordinary in our culture is a negative thing. If, if, uh, if there's a pundit, a football pundit on TV, and they said, well, you know, Frank Lampard had a, an ordinary game, that doesn't mean he had a great game. That's a negative thing. 
If a teacher hears a five-year-old say, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I, 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 I want to be ordinary. What would a teacher say? It's fascinating, isn't it? Really interesting. They'd say, no, no, come on. That's not a good ambition. We don't want to be ordinary. You want to be extraordinary. You want to be something special. You want to be something unique. It's quite an interesting thing in our culture, isn't it? How offended we get by stuff that's just ordinary. We tend to despise it. The mundane. We want to live extraordinary lives. We want to be part of an extraordinary church. What's the globe church like? Well, it's just very ordinary. Disappointing. It's extraordinary. Oh, good. Do you see how actually we crave what's extraordinary and we despise what is ordinary? Now, of course, the problem is that that puts you under massive pressure. Because by definition, most people are going to be ordinary. Right? I mean, that is the definition. The definition is what most people are. That's ordinary. So you are go- most people are doomed to an ordinary life. And yet, we set up the idea that we should all try to be extraordinary. So we set up our lives to fail, most of us. It's fascinating how crazy we are. And some of us, we're on this relentless pursuit of an extraordinary life and we feel the pressure and we're in London and we feel it. In London, there's so much on offer and we feel the pressure and for some of us, it's pretty overwhelming. And we look at our lives and we just think, I'm just so ordinary. There's nothing special about me. I'm just a normal person. I've got a normal job. I'm boring. Now, I want to try and show you this afternoon. If you don't get over that obsession with being extraordinary, you're going to have a very disappointing life. And you will end up disillusioned. And most of all, the message of Jesus will make no sense to you at all. Because I want to try and show you this afternoon that ordinary is exactly what God uses. Ordinary is exactly where God wants us to be. I'm going to try and show you that from this story. I mean, it is an odd little story. Were you listening as it was read? It's an odd little story, isn't it? It comes at the end of a section of Mark's Gospel. If you just kind of flick your eyes back, you know, it's kind of a few chapters into Mark. He's been writing this book. He's told us he's got some good news for us. It's all about Jesus. He wants us to see Jesus. He set Jesus up as the Messiah, this hero figure. Jesus has done amazing things. Jesus is the great hero who's going to bring God's kingdom. Jesus has been saying, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is near. It's all about the kingdom. Jesus is this wonderful figure. And in the last couple of chapters, Jesus has calmed a storm and he's raised the dead and he's healed the sick and he's cast out demons. It's pretty exciting. And this little section rounds off a chunk in Mark. It's all been based around this Lake Galilee. This is the end of a section in Mark. And this is how Mark finishes it. It's a weird end to a section. It's a bit disappointing. So have a look at chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown. 
Jesus doesn't head off for the bright lights of the, uh, of the capital. He doesn't head off for the place where he can make his name and be a mega superstar. Jesus doesn't forget his roots. He goes back to his hometown. That's Nazareth, right? Do you know how big Nazareth was? They reckon it was about 150 people in this town. It's a tiny little place. I mean, what are we? We're probably 70. It was like double us. That would be the whole town that Jesus was from. That was his hometown. So Jesus goes back to his hometown. Fascinating, isn't it? Jesus doesn't despise the ordinary. He doesn't despise his family. He doesn't forget his roots. He's bothered about his family. So he returns to his home, back to Nazareth. Well, what would you expect? As Jesus, this great hero, calmed the storm, raised the dead, healed the sick, cast out demons, he comes to his hometown. What would you expect? I mean, surely some kind of welcome. Surely some banner. <laughs> welcome home, Jesus. Look, little boy done good. He's our Nazareth boy. He's in all the headlines, he's in all the papers, you know, open bus tour. There's nothing. There's no great homecoming. In fact, it's really strange what happens. Let me just show you the movement. I'm going to show you what happens. There's three reactions you get. Trace them through with me. It's dead easy to see. This is, preaching's not difficult. This is, you just say what it says. Here it is. Verse 2. The first reaction when Jesus gets home is that the people are, what does it say? Amazed. See how easy this is? It's reading, okay? (laughs) Uh, They were amazed. That's the first reaction. The second reaction is in verse 3. And what's the second reaction? It's at the end of verse 3, so you have to get right to the end. I realise it takes a while to get to it. Exactly, they're offended by him. It's fun, this game, isn't it? So they are amazed, then they're offended, and then in verse 6, they, Jesus is amazed at their lack of faith. So here is the pathway that the people go on. In his hometown, as Jesus gets home, here is the the journey they go on. Amazed, offended, unbelief. That's what happens when Jesus gets home. Now that's quite a weird story. We'd expect a bit more of a kind of fanfare story to round off this section of Mark. It would be nice if if Mark could finish off this section nicely, send Jesus off with a bit of a fanfare, off he goes. But Mark isn't interested in telling us some nice made-up story. He's interested in helping us to see who Jesus really is. Jesus is uh, Mark is trying to show us who Jesus is and he's exposing what human hearts are really like. Because I don't know about you, but as I've read this, I find exactly the same sort of reactions in my heart. The human heart, by nature will be amazed, offended, and ultimately will not believe in Jesus. That is what our hearts are like. We used to have a car. Uh, We still have a car. We used to have a different car. Uh, And it was a weird car because it didn't go straight. (laughs) I mean, that's a fairly basic requirement, I'd have said, for a car. But, you know, if you let go of the wheel, which, again, I realise that's not great driving... But if you let go of the wheel, it would, it would just drift off, off the road. <laughs> you know. So you had to constantly hold the wheel. It, its natural inclination was to go off into the fields, to freedom and to happiness over there. 
It didn't like being constrained by the lines on the road. It wanted the fields. So my car's natural inclination. Now, the Bible says the human heart is like that. It has a natural inclination. It's not just that our hearts are sort of neutral and we're kind of like, oh, God, God. Our hearts have a natural inclination towards unbelief. It's actually what the Bible says is the problem with our hearts. By nature, our hearts are full of what is called sin. Now, sin is not just doing naughty things. Sin means not believing what God says is true. Sin is unbelief. So I hope this afternoon, as we trace through amazement to offence to unbelief, I hope it will expose something in our hearts and I hope it will help us to understand what our hearts are like and to see Jesus more clearly. So let's, let's go through those three. That's all we're going to do. We're just going to go through those three uh, responses to Jesus. It's dead simple. And, and try and unpack and think about what happens. So Jesus comes to his hometown. He's accompanied by his disciples. And the first reaction seems pretty good, right? They're amazed. Yeah, that's fairly positive. Jesus goes into the synagogue, he preaches a sermon, and they're amazed. To be honest, I think if after this sermon, I said, how did you find it? You said, I was amazed. I think, okay, that'll do. Nice. That's what we were looking for. The crowd seemed to respond initially fairly positively. They're amazed at what he says. Now, this is important for us to understand, right? Mark has been saying again and again, Jesus came to be a preacher. He came to be a teacher, to speak truth. He goes into the synagogue to speak. Over and over again in Mark's Gospel, we've seen Jesus is a preacher. And his message is not a self-help program. It's not a philosophical idea. His message is this good news of a kingdom into a broken world, a world of death, of sickness, of evil. Jesus has come with a message to preach, to declare to this world that God's kingdom has come. A kingdom not of death, but of life. A kingdom not of sickness, but of healing and well-being. Jesus is this preacher who's come with this message. It is a breathtaking message. Oh, and do you know what? It's, I think it's hard. I, you know, some of us, we've been in church for a long time. We get used to this message. We, some of us, we're not amazed. When was the last time you were amazed at Jesus? It's sad, isn't it, how familiar it gets? You know, it's a bit like bungee jumping. I've never bungee jumped. I imagine if I bungee jumped, the first time would be terrifying and quite an exhilarating rush of excitement and amazement. If I did it every single day <laughs> for the rest of my life, I imagine I'd get to a point of saying, oh, I've got to go and do bungee jump again today. You lose your amazement. Well, I wonder if we're like that. I wonder if we lost our amazement at this message that Jesus come to preach. He's come to preach that this world of brokenness is not all there is. There is hope, there is freedom, there is joy, and it's in Jesus this King. So Jesus is preaching. Now imagine you're in the crowd that day. Imagine you turn up at the synagogue and you, you, you're a bit stressed because the kids have lost their shoes and it's like running around. You're like, you know, well, you've had a lion, the alarm didn't go off. You rush into the synagogue and oh, we're like, sit down. Who's preaching today? Uh, service sheet says it's Jesus. 
gee, what that? Not the little kid. He's preaching. Okay, let's listen to what he's got to say. You sit and you listen to this guy. And, and the first response is amazement. You see, when Jesus opens his mouth, I want you to understand that what comes out of his mouth is the word of God. He is speaking God's truth. That's why they're amazed by it. Uh, keep your finger in Mark 6. We're going to jump around a little bit this afternoon. I want you to go to 1 Kings 10, uh, which is back in the Old Testament on page 348. I just, I just want us to kind of toy with this idea of being amazed uh, at Jesus for a second. 1 Kings 10, so on page 348. And here's another king. Sometimes King Solomon. And King Solomon who speaks amazing wisdom. And people come from all over the place to listen to King Solomon. And particularly this woman, uh, the Queen of Sheba, comes. Have a look at verse 6. 1 Kings 10, verse 6. Uh, well, let's go from verse 4. When the Queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he'd built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw them with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me in wisdom and wealth you far exceeded the reports I've heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. So here's this King Solomon. He's speaking wisdom all the time, just like Jesus in the synagogue. He opens his mouth, out comes God's wisdom, and the Queen of Sheba comes and says, wow, this is cool. And then she says, do you notice, how happy all your servants must be? Because they get to stand here all day listening to your wisdom. Don't you reckon there were some servants going, happy? (laughs) What? You know, it's like, they're so familiar, they're so close to Solomon, that they've lost the privilege. Queen of Sheba, she can see it. She comes in and goes, man, these guys stand all day listening to you. Yeah, they're just servants, but they're, look, they're listening to you all the time. They've lost the privilege. They've lost any sense of privilege. I wonder this afternoon, do you see? Do you see that this afternoon we can listen to the words of Jesus? Does it amaze you? Do you read it? Do you read it through the week? Do you try and understand it? Do you have any hunger for it? On that day in synagogue, in the synagogue, the people are amazed. That's the first response. But listen, that is not enough. And to be an admirer of Jesus is not enough. There may be people here this afternoon who say, oh yeah, I love Jesus, I really respect him, he's a great teacher. It's not enough. It's not enough to be impressed by him. Because what happens next is the key turning point in this story. Have a look at what happens next. Because the people move from amazement... To offence. And what happens is uh, there are si- a series of six questions. Have a look at it from verse, it's like rapid fire questioning. So just listen to how it goes, right? As they're sitting there, it's like, oh, it's little Jesus comes to preach. Uh, where did this man get these things? They ask, what's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judah, and Simon? Aren't his brothers here with us? And by the end of their six questions, they're offended. Those six questions take them from being amazed to being offended. Why? What happened in those questions? Well, the first three questions are all about what. 
The first three questions are all about the extraordinary things Jesus does. He's amazing. Where do you get this wisdom? These miracles he's performing. The first three things are all about the amazing things. But what are the next three questions all about? They're all about how ordinary he is. That's what offends him. It's just the carpenter. Isn't this the carpenter? We know his family. We've, we watched him grow up. We watched him run around like, like a kid, you know, running around with all those playing. We remember him as a kid. And here's what offends them. What offends them is not the extraordinary stuff. It's the ordinary thing. That's what they can't get their heads around. It's just Jesus. And the ordinariness of Jesus it makes them stumble. It scandalizes them. It's the extraordinary clothed in the ordinary. That is offensive. He's just one of us. And it's offensive because as humanity, we love to be something significant and special and extraordinary. And here's this man who's just so ordinary. Now, I, want to, I really want you to understand this this afternoon. And if you kind of drifted off, wake up for this. This is really important. God acts in order to humble proud humanity. God deliberately acts. So he sends his son, right? Get this. He sends his son to be the great Messiah, the great hero. And what clothes does he put him in? The clothes of the carpenter. Do you see? This is how God works. This is what God does. He clothes the extraordinary in the ordinary. Look, what, we're just about to celebrate Christmas. What is Christmas all about? It's about this, the extraordinary being clothed in the ordinary. When God sent his precious, beautiful, eternal son and made him a tiny, little, squawking baby. It's what's called the incarnation. This great doctrine at the heart of Christianity. The incarnation. Do you know what incarnation means? This is how you remember what incarnation means, right? Carne, the carn it bit, means meat. Now you know that because of chili con carne, right? So chili con carne is chili with meat. That's what chili con carne is. I went into a restaurant the other day and they had a sign up for vegetarian chili con carne. Which of course is... I was going to point it out, but I felt I was being pedantic. <laughs> well, then maybe, yeah, anyway. So if you want to know what the incarnation is, it's this. The incarnation is God concarning. God with meat. God with flesh. That's the incarnation. It is God, the extraordinary God, clothed in the very ordinary humanity of a little baby. And God seems to emphasize it again and again. Who does he choose? Who does he choose to be the mother of Jesus? An outstandingly spectacular woman? No. It's Mary. Ordinary Mary. Just a teenage girl. He's born into an ordinary family with an, in an ordinary place. 
Now, of course, we can't cope with this, so what do we do? Humanity wants to say, oh, Mary must be something special. Let's elevate Mary. Let's make her something significant and big and important, queen of heaven. No. No, she's not. That's the whole point. The whole point is she is ordinary. Because that's what God does. He clothes the extraordinary in the ordinary. He places the extraordinary God in the womb of a very ordinary woman. That's the miracle of what God does. And this is where it's very clear. Even here, look. We know Mary's family. This is Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judah. Mary went on to have other children. Now, Mary, we... We absolutely hold to the virgin birth. That Jesus was born of a virgin. That Jesus was conceived by the power of the Spirit, the extraordinary clothed in the ordinary. But, Je- but Mary went on to have other children. She went on to have an, a normal family. And the teaching of the church, which has elevated her to a position of special status, is wrong because it denies the ordinariness of what Jesus has done. And so here is God clothed in flesh. And actually this lies at the very heart of all of the message of Christianity. It's just so ordinary. And that's what causes people to stumble. It's not spectacular enough. Fine God, if you're going to send your son as a human being, let's make him something impressive. Let's make him a king or a a mighty something. No, it's just ordinary. Uh, can you keep, uh, can I ask you to fix somewhere else? Um, can you go to 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1? This is so important for us to understand. One Corinthians um, chapter 1. And it's, oh, it's on page 1144. And look at verse 18 with me. It says this, just listen, listen for what what we've been saying, okay? This obsession that humanity has with the extraordinary and how Jesus is all about the ordinary. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world for its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Get this. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block. Same word, an offence. It's exactly the same word as in Mark. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, the Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, if, if you think that God in a, in a womb is offensive, you wait till you get to the end of Mark's Gospel. When you see Jesus nailed, battered, beaten, naked, hanging on a cross. It's utter foolishness. It's so weak and unspectacular. Yeah, the message of the Bible is that there, right there, in the middle of that most weak and ordinary and pathetic thing, that is God saving humanity. 
That's how God saves. Because as Jesus died on the cross, He took upon Himself my sin, my unbelief, this stuff that we were talking about earlier. He took it upon Himself and He died in my place and He paid what I owe. But of course for many people it's too ordinary. Many people don't want to believe this. It's too easy. I used to, I used to meet up with this guy, lovely guy called Bill. Uh, he'd seen a lot of life. Uh, he'd had all, all sorts of experiences. And we were looking through Mark's Gospel. And every week he asked me the same question. He got to and he goes, yeah, but what have I got to do? What have I got to do? And I'd say to him, you... You, you need to trust Jesus. That's it. You go, no! There must be more I've got to do. No. It's so simple. And yet that is what offends people. There's a, there's a great story in the Old Testament. Don't remember what turning to it. But there's a guy called Naaman, right? And he was, he was like really impressive, powerful ruler. And he got leprosy. And he went off to see this bloke called Elisha. Uh, and... Uh, Elisha said to him, listen, what you've got to do is you've got to go and dip yourself in that river. And Naaman's response was, you're having a laugh. No way. I'm not doing that. It's just an ordinary river. i got rivers back home. I could have dipped in one of them. Our rivers are better than your rivers. This is what he says. It's 2 Kings 5 if you want to look at it later. And one of his servants says to him, listen, Naaman, if he'd asked you to do something really impressive, you'd have done it, wouldn't you? So why won't you go and do this? And that gets at our heart. We want to be extraordinary. We want to be able to say, look at what I've done. Look how amazing I am. Look at this fantastic thing I've done. And God says, I'm not interested in what you've done. I don't care. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how much money you've given away. I don't care because I'm not impressed. I want you to trust my ordinary son. I want you to put your trust in him. It's a scandal. And for many it's too unspectacular. God wraps up his extraordinary gospel in very ordinary folks. And you know what? Now here's the cool thing. And this is, this is where it really applies to some of us today. If you are a Christian, if you trust in Jesus, listen to this. Do you know what God does with his extraordinary gospel today? He places it in very ordinary places. Pick over to 2 Corinthians 4. Just have, just have a look at this. This really should. This is page 1161. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So here it is, right? Um, have a look at, from verse 6, right? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ, right? Okay, amazing gospel. But, verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. In other words, God says, I tell you what I'm going to do. I've got this wonderful treasure, this message of Jesus, this treasure that's spectacularly beautiful, and I'm going to put it in the most ugly, unimpressive thing I can find. 
Because if you put it in this unimpressive thing, what do you notice? You notice the treasure rather than the... Imagine it was a beautiful vase. People would spend too long going, oh, what a lovely vase. I like the painting and the ornate stuff. And they'd never look at the treasure inside. And that is why God chooses ordinary people because they don't get in the way of the message. (laughs) Because if you're too impressive, everyone will be impressed by you and they'll never see Jesus. So if you think you're too ordinary to be used by Jesus, I've got some great news for you. You can't be too ordinary. The more ordinary, the better. You can be too spectacular. You can be too impressive. And you'll hide the gospel because people will never see it because they're looking at you. And here is Jesus. If Jesus was willing to become so ordinary, are you willing to be ordinary? To give up our pursuit of being the best and being impressive? Are we willing to be an ordinary church? It just says, well, look, we'll, we'll be ordinary. We'll love Jesus. We're not going to try and be spectacular. God uses the ordinary. But for many of us, it's, it's offensive and we, we find it and we have to fight against our desire to be extraordinary. And the tragedy is that the amazement that leads to offence leads to unbelief. And this is the final thing. Have a look uh, back in Mark 6. And we're nearly there. Have a look at verse 6. Well, look at verse, from verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few people who were ill and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Pretty sad, isn't it? Jesus goes to his hometown and they don't believe in him. That's a weird phrase where he could not do any miracles. Isn't he limited? I don't think that means that he needs the faith in order to do the miracles. I think what it means is that Jesus says he doesn't do miracles because miracles are... Miracles are not what Jesus does to produce faith. Miracles are what Jesus does in response to faith. So, look, we might think, once they've rejected him, Jesus could just do a few miracles. Jesus could kind of do a bit of flashy stuff, raise some people from the dead, feed some sick people, do some stuff, and they go, ah, actually, yeah, 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 okay, we'll follow you. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that because they've got enough. They've got enough already. And they have rejected his word. They've rejected what he's said. They've rejected the ordinary. And he will not become extraordinary in order to convince them to follow him. They've got enough. This is why it's really dangerous when you hear people say, well, if God would just do some miracles, if he'd just do some flashy stuff, then i believe in him. No. God's given you what you need. He sent his son Jesus who came and preached and lived and died and rose again. God doesn't need to do more. And our desire for more is because we want something extraordinary. I don't want ordinary stuff. The Bible is so ordinary. It's just a book. I want something spectacular. No. God doesn't work like that. And so Jesus left. And can I say this? There is no recorded account when Jesus went back again. He left and didn't go back. And is it even possible that as he left, 
he shook the dust off his feet, as he's about to tell his disciples to do in verse 11. But as he left, he said, you've heard my word. You have rejected me, and I'm walking away. And as Jesus walks away from that town, they've rejected the one man who can bring them hope and forgiveness. They've rejected the one man who can truly bring them blessing. And their unbelief, and this is the tragedy of unbelief, their unbelief will lead them to an eternity without God's blessing. It's what the Bible calls hell. Unbelief leads to hell, life without Jesus. That is why this is so serious. And Jesus is amazed. I don't think it's amazed in the kind of, oh, wow. He's amazed in a heavy-hearted sort of, you don't believe. And he walks away. Now, we actually know that quite a few members of his family did come to trust him. They followed him. They wrote bits of the Bible. They led the church. His brothers, you know, fantastic. But for Nazareth, he walked away. So this afternoon, as we look at this passage, and it's just a short little account, but can you see how God uses the ordinary? Maybe even this afternoon, God is saying to you, don't despise the ordinary. Don't despise the small, little thing. Can you see in it what God is doing? Don't reject Jesus. Don't walk away from him. Don't let your amazement turn to offence, to unbelief. Instead, let your amazement drive you to him. Drive you to cry to him, to believe in him. Like we saw with the woman bleeding last week who came to Jesus in faith. And Jesus said, oh, my daughter, yes, I love you. Go in peace. Let your amazement drive you to him. We're going to pray together. And then we're going to uh, respond and sing and and, uh, have communion together to respond to what God is saying. But this is a pretty sobering story. Um, But it's actually a wonderful encouragement to us this afternoon. So let's pray, and then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, we, um, we praise you so much that You sent your son to be an ordinary man, just a carpenter. You sent him to die a very unspectacular and horrific death. And it was for us. And Father, we pray that we would not despise the ordinary. We pray that we would not so pursue the extraordinary that we miss Jesus. Father, help us to see in Jesus the King Yes, the extraordinary king, but the one who's clothed in the ordinary clothes of humanity. And Father, we pray that we trust him, that we'd find him to be our saviour, our hope. Please keep us from being offended. Keep us from unbelief, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why why don't we stand and and sing together? Um, We love to sing. It's a way to respond.